Welcome to Dove and Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Roostrack, and I'm here with Jace Collins. Welcome. Thank you. Now, you have a book out. It's called Haunting from Beyond the Unknown. This is a little different from what I've been having on the show because you're a horror author, and here recently I've been an entrepreneur. So please, tell me a little bit about your book. Well, the book itself was... uh it was difficult for me to work with because when working with a haunted house story, there may be a number of people that might find it so easy to work with. Though to tell you the truth, it's not really that simple, and there's reasons for it. One of the reasons is that when it comes to writing a haunted house story, if anyone's looked at tradition, there's a certain difference between the tradition of haunted houses and the new ways that haunted houses can be made. For example, if anyone's ever seen the uh, the Scooby-Doo TV series, not the new cartoons, the ones that first came out on Boomerang. You ever seen Boomerang before on Cartoon Network? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those have certain examples. And then there's, uh, are you familiar with the author R.L. Stein? I am. Yeah, he had written some of the Goosebumps books, but he also had written two other series. He had written the Haunting Hour series and also the Fear Street series. But the Fear Street series has had a, it's more like a two-in-one series. There was roughly, a, I think it was a six or a 12-book series written about it, and then there was a trilogy that followed called The Fear Street Nights, which had all the same stories and rumors from the first series. Right. I vaguely you don't really find too many authors that write a two-in-one series like that. Right. Though through The Haunting Hour and The Goosebumps stories, even R.L. Stein had his own versions of haunted houses, though they were more child-friendly Except for his Fear Street series, that was definitely a very big teen series. True. So that being said, there's a lot of common things I've noticed from tradition. Even when I saw the movie Casper, all these traditional things, they all, all have the same common, uh, common effects. You have the usual chases. You have the usual... Uh, you have the usual windows and doors. They are slammed shut and... The ghost always has a supernatural hold over the, 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 the exits. There's no way to get out. And in a number of cases, normally when it comes to trying to beat the ghost, by tradition, someone would try to find a way outside of the home, try to find the graveyard, find the, the bones, mm-hmm. and they would try to salt them first to purify it and then light it on fire and burn it, like in the Supernatural TV series, for example, to which I've right. seen. I ha- I've also been a fan of that too. Yes. So, yeah, involving that, the one way to, to normally get rid of the ghost is, yes, you burn the bones. Another way is if there's any DNA left, such as uh, maybe a little bit of blood spattered, maybe there's an object that keeps the, the ghost tethered, you wouldn't have to put salt on that. You can just burn it, and supposedly the ghost just goes away. I guess what I'm saying is that it's always been the same. It's always been the same stuff traditionally. Yeah, now that you actually mentioned it, it's all traditionally based in the same thing. No one's done something different. I mean, R.L. Stein's work is a little different in terms of how he writes about ghosts and hauntings, but it depends on what he's written about in in his books. It's not always the same with him. It varies. Mm -hmm. So you have to really know his work to know how each haunted description he's used, and more than one just ghosts, even with werewolves, with uh, different kinds of creatures, 
-hmm. you really have to pick specifics with his work because it's not that black and white. Right. So that being said, I asked myself, you know, after seeing all this traditional stuff and after seeing some unconventional work for haunted houses, I asked myself, what's the way that I could do it that's original for me? What's the way that I could do it where it's not like anybody else that's ever done anything like that before? How do I do this? What is my, my direction, my start, my foundation to build up? So here's the, the cool part about that. I thought about all the stuff I already knew, and I put this all into a box in my mind, almost like a diorama. And diorama, if I didn't say that correctly. And when I put it all into a box in my mind, I started to see that I had this, this one big comparing model. I had a big comparing model to work with, and I went from there. I thought about all the stuff outside of the box. I thought about every part of a haunted house story that's not normally included, such as battles, obstacles. Sometimes, at the same time, in certain scenes, I thought about certain rooms being much bigger on the inside than the overall size of the houses on the outside. I thought about all these different types of fights that would, would mix up obstacles that would mix up. I thought about different use of weapons. I thought about giving the human characters a fighting chance against evil. I thought about all these different things. I also thought about certain fears that could be used against the, the human characters, whether from their past, maybe something that would involve their future. I took it all above and beyond, and I did it. I made a completely revolutionary, unique, original haunted house story that throws horror to its maximum fear, even from psychological fear, not just physical. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Now, with yours, do you put it in the uh, strobe lights? I, I know it's a book, but do you mention them? For strobe lights? Strobe lights. A lot of the house, haunted houses right now are using strobe lights to intensify the fear factor. No, there are, there are no strobe lights in my work. Uh, just asking. I have a friend that actually just built a haunted house. That's why I'm like, his one thing was with the going through the maze of doors that may or may not open with people jumping out at you, also have the strobe lights to disorientate you while you're going through the maze. No, my work is nothing like that. <laughs> well, like, like I said, that's why we have an open conversation, right? Always giving the yep. idea for something li later. Uh, to tell you the truth, I tend to compare and contrast a lot of ideas. My whole mind is like a huge custom machine. Well, that's the world of an author. Our minds are not wired for linear thought. We think in squiggles. Yeah, it's kind of the same way how I am when I'm working on sketch art. Speaking of which, I did design my own book cover. Okay. That is awesome. Yeah, I like to use wax. It's very lifelike with the coloring. Wax, and then do you scan it or photograph it? Well, I have a certain way that I do it. I have a certain method. And it's a method that authors uh, have traditionally not used because traditionally speaking certain companies would have other artists who would do that for them. 
but the Amazon company is the only company I know of from, from their Kindle branch, that, that division, <clears throat> division. Mm -hmm. they allow for authors to customize their own book covers. And there's several ways to do that. There's a graphic art feature from certain computers that allows it, but you can also do it by hand too and then have it uploaded. And that's what I decided to do. So I drew it out by hand, and I, what I did was I used actual sketch pencils. I didn't even mention this part from my last interview. I used actual sketch pencils that they are made in a very specific way where the graphite is twisted. So as a result, as you draw with the pencil, you're encouraged to curve it as you're drawing with it on paper. Huh. Yeah. And not only that, there's a number of different labels and different types of thickness for shading in for uh, different types of black and white sketch drawings, even particular types of sketch artists for, you know you see in TV shows how you normally see the sketch artist at a police station who would be sketching a certain suspect's face? Even yeah. those have very different types of sketch pencils. As a matter of fact, when I drew my book covers, a type of sketch set that I got was the same kind that's normally used in those kinds of shows. I'm going to have to look into yeah. that. I have a, and the I best part is, is that, that uh, with those kinds of cases, they have this small type of special pencil, but it's not made of graphite. It's made of the same type of, of uh, paper that's used for traditional sketch paper. The difference between sketch paper and regular paper when it comes to sketching is that sketch paper looks very similar to a canvas board, but it's made with a special kind of coating. And this coating right. is, is a very different type of texture. It feel, even feels different compared to regular paper. The feel of it is so very different. You can even see that the pigment on the sketch paper. No, I, I understand sketch paper. My daughter's an uh, artist, so she's constantly drawing. So what you're saying is, as a mother, that helps me with her. <laughs> so. Very good for you. You must be very proud of your daughter being a sketch author. I'm very happy to hear it. Oh, yeah. I, I, it's, it helps me understand her world. So I, I thank you for that much. <laughs> You're explaining things that I never thought of with her. Well, there are, there are a number of different ways to, to sketch art. For example, I come from a long line of artists on both sides of my family. My dad's side of the family is more into performing arts. They're more like musicians playing instruments and stuff and, and understanding sheet music, the music scale, whereas my mom's side of the family is more about creative arts. And I get my writing talent from her side of the family, even sketch art. Even my uh, – I've had an uncle – my mom's brother who's good at that stuff too. Awesome. Yeah, He's, talent itself is inherent. There's family bloodlines, even as being an artist. Oh, yeah. A lot of um, artists, whether if it be writing, performing arts, or drawing, or snip, stuff like that, you have it somewhere in your genealogy. It's there. You just have to tap into it. Yeah, but tapping into it is not as easy. Though if there's anything I've learned about tapping into talent, it, it, it even varies between family members. Not, not any one family member taps into their potential even, even to use their talent compared to another. For me, when I, when I found my potential, that was a, a very particular story to how that happened. Oh, please share. Well, it, it was a series of events that led me to what happened in my life. When I first discovered it, I was 10 years old. And, and back then, that was a very different time for me. 
there were a lot of problems when I was a kid. I was bullied and harassed. I was not treated very fairly amongst many people. There were parents of certain kids of the community back when I used to go to this school that were, were not very, they didn't like me very well. They didn't like my brother very well, and even my parents were not looked upon very well. My parents have meant well in so many ways, and they have worked so many weird hours before they finally got to their careers that they're at these days. They used to be in between a lot of weird jobs, working weird hours. And so as a result, they couldn't always meet as much for, uh, for certain conferences and whatnot. They couldn't have too much, too much to do with hanging out with many of the, uh, the other parents in the community, even though there were times that they tried, and at times that did work, but most of the time they were just trying to make sure that my brother and I had a life. So I really do respect them for that in that regard. It was not easy for them at all. It was a very tough situation for us. And uh, what would happen further was when I was getting bullied as a child, it made it hard for me to be a part of sports teams, even though I was on sports teams and I got through some of them. And uh, there, there was a lot of problems going on back then. The biggest problem of all was that there was a principal that didn't like me very much. He he thought that I was being a bully to kids, and I never was. I mean, I was a very small kid for my age. I was shorter than most kids my age. Even my doctor had told me that I was behind the growth curve when I was a child. He showed charts. And there were normally kids who were twice my size, even, even for who were two grades above me. They used to really hurt me horribly. I was traumatized as a child. But for some reason that I can't explain, I've always had this fascination to horror that wasn't tied into bullies. And when I was fascinated by seeing all these supernatural beings, I guess one of the reasons why I liked them, despite that many times supernatural beings involving vampires, werewolves, demons, etc., they were basically their own people who didn't take crap from anyone. And no matter what they were fighting for, they at least went down fighting. And I guess that's why I respected supernatural creatures so much. It's because they didn't take any crap from anybody. And one day when I had an opportunity to write a story, it was a school assignment in my fourth grade class back when I was 10 years old. And, and this story that I'd written was so terrifying that it mortified the community. It mortified the teachers. It mortified the principal. The only people that were not scared but liked it were the kids. It was weird. Hmm. Even the kids who bullied me liked the story. It was so weird. I swear, the weirdest thing ever. And that story was actually meant for an adult level when I was 10 years old writing it. It was about swamp monsters, but not the kind you would normally read about, not the ones that would normally be covered in seaweed and look like amphibians. They wouldn't be uh, made of mud or of uh, any kind of really weird uh, roots, nothing like that. Now, while there's been different types of stories about swamp monsters and movies and TV shows and books, my swamp monsters were so much more terrifying and so much more lethal. They were, ugh, they were a hybrid of reptilian and amphibian where the amphibian layers were on the outside of their bodies to protect them from a lot of things, including toxins, infections, etc. And the inside of their body was reptilian scales, very blackened and very tough, tough like titanium, mm -hmm. harder than carbon steel really rough from the description that I made. I also described them having blood red teeth and, and fangs in certain descriptions, looking serrated, kind of like shark teeth. 
and claws that were very sharp and thick like prehistoric dinosaur claws. It was really in description. Even the ways I described the fins around their heads, their hands and their feet, all in white. I put a lot of really great description into these swamp monsters. Being over at six feet tall, over 200 pounds, I mean, these things were huge. And they were bulky, menacing, had piercing red eyes with black pupils. I mean, these creatures were immensely intense. And I'd written a fake origin about pirates on a swamp who built a boat on the swamp back when the water was not toxic at first. And what they did was they would raid a certain small town for riches and everything else, even for very expensive rum. And yes, I knew what alcohol was as a 10-year-old and what it did to adults back then. It's called when, you're, uh, when you see a few parties once in a while, you yeah. tend to notice a few things. Yes, you do. And you Even though I was uh, a lot differently. Yeah, I, I was supposed to stay in my bedroom, but once in a while when I, when I went to go use the bathroom, I would notice someone holding a bottle. So, uh, yeah, I even noticed some of the behavior behind it, too, which is a little goofy. I kind of laughed at first as a child. When you're a kid, you're not going to notice that in a certain way. And so what happened was, after I finished the story, I had mentioned that there was a part in it where the pirates were asleep one night from drinking too much, and they had all the treasure on their boat. And over time, what happened was that the swamp was naturally changing and they had these really horrible toxins that, that were liquefying with the muck, broke through the bottom of the boat where they were sleeping one night and just basically pulled the passed out pirates that were drunk to the bottom of the swamp and they mutated into the swamp monsters. And these people from college who heard the stories from their hometown all got together, went to explore the swamp, and there was a huge fight and a frenzy that mortified everyone. And ever since, I was forbidden to write like that as a child because it was too scary. Right. Well, my daughter, she's, she does a little bit of uh, fan fictions because she's not comfortable yet writing her own stories, even though I keep telling her she has enough of the story herself created, that it is her so- story. She just has to take certain elements out. And she gets dark. I, I mean, it's dark fiction that's meant for adults and above <laughs> and she's well, if you're looking for some advice here's what I can say from my experience and this is very easy to remember I've had the same type of conflict I mean, well not so much a conflict more like a, a complicated talk we'll call it a complicated talk I had a complicated talk with one of my relatives I won't say which one mm-hmm. she, she was encouraging me to, to get my work out there because she believed it was already done and I tried telling her that it's not done. I have more work to do. And there's a reason for that. When it comes to writing, especially the first several years as an author, are the hardest. They always are because you're learning a lot about yourself as an author. You're learning about how creative you can be. You're learning about the plot line. You're learning about how to structure your description. And it takes a lot of work to know how to do that. And authors make a ton of mistakes in the beginning. Even the best of authors have done that. Oh, yeah, you can go to any best-selling author, go back to their earliest work that they have published, read that compared to their newest work, and you'll see a lot of growth between the two. Yeah, as a matter of fact, my favorite author, Darren O'Shaughnessy, I have a dedication page made to him in my book. 
he started writing for adults at first, and his first two books didn't sell very well because he was rushing his work too quickly. He even admitted it in his biography. It was only when he started writing for older teens, and he focused on his vampire series and his demon series and all these other series that he made. He became a very well-known author. He even had a movie made by Warner Brothers. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and he I used to be someone who used to live in Ireland, and there wasn't really a whole lot for, uh, for TV shows back then, from what he used to say at this time. But before he was even an author, he spent his time working with a, a radio station. So he, I, I'm not really sure if he mentioned he was a journalist or if he was a cable person, but he definitely worked for a radio station I, I would have to before he was an author. Look at it. I mean, there's so many good authors that have wor- had work put into film that it's amazing. However, the, on the flip side, if you read the book and then watch the movie, you're like, where's this element, where's that element, and you're left hanging because you're a fan of the book. You have things in your head that's not being portrayed. Well, you know, to be fair, there are many great authors that make really great books. So as a result, because they're so ahead of their time and they're so well-detailed, not mm-hmm. even the best of motion picture industries, even in this country, can capture the full vision of the author. Correct. That, that is 100%. So, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Yeah. We, I mean, we have it from the author's point of view. We have it from the reader's point of view. And I have it from the film point of view. And I try to merge all of it into one messy soup. <laughs> Oh, believe me, you're not going to have it any easier doing that. <laughs> my, my perspective is to compare all the imagery instead of all the words and all, and all the pictures together. Just look at all the imagery that you see best in your own mind. And, mm-hmm. and to not have to feel bad about this part, there's an old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So even when one person read the book, they're not going to see it the same way as some other person, especially depending on the limits of the words that are described anyway. Sometimes right. words are so flexible, people can have different pictures in their minds. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't feel so bad about that. No. I, I, I said for everyone. Yes. Everyone ha- you can put 10 readers in a room, give them all the same book, and they will argue over what a character looks like based on how they see yeah. it in their head. Yeah, that's what we call the Comic-Con convention. <laughs> <laughs> Very true, because if you go, if anyone's ever been to uh, Comic-Con, you have 200 Wonder Womans, and they're all different. They There's have- also uh, the, the, the comic book forums online, all those discussion boards. Even the message boards for, for certain online video games, all the same stuff. You never want to get into those arguments. It's the same type of drama as social media on Facebook and YouTube comments. It's all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it, it's, if you sit back to watch it from a watcher's point of view, it's hilarious. You know, it's really funny. You know, art, art and religion in regard have a lot of similar followers, similar believers. It's very crazy sometimes how far they go even with art believing that it actually exists. In some ways, I mean. Yeah. You have your believers that art is real. That whatever's written in an art form has to have happened somewhere. 
and that's their what they believe. Also, to be fair on that part, there's, there's a word for that. It's called insight. And in some ways, I mean, talent is uncanny. There are sometimes that's said even in myth that some people can see things that are beyond the current dimension we have, and sometimes even in different times. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's it, why even the great classics were, were believed to have been ahead of their time when they were written. The Sleepy Hollow stories, the Grim Tales, the, the mm-hmm. Divine Comedy, all those great stories. Right. We have so many great authors, so many great talented people that were 1400 up to the 1920s just in that area that were so ahead of their time with space travel, with um, demonic beings, with the angels, with everything that they were portraying that we do on TV now. They were so far ahead, they weren't popular back then like they are now. So I do believe that in recent years, that particular great cycle has restarted again. Mm-hmm. I do believe that in recent decades it has been happening and that we have a number of great artists who are redefining a new generation for the world. Very true. But they're not being utilized now. It's going to take them probably until either till they decease or right before before they're known for their work because that's how far advanced they are. I'm not saying this... Yeah, probably another 50 or 70 years. I believe you're right about that. Yeah. They're so far advanced. It's not that it's something that we're looking at now, but our children, our grandchildren, are going to be the ones that go, oh my goodness, I love this. Those More so going to be a talk in different types of colleges for uh, certain elective courses about books mm-hmm. between professors and college students. Exactly. Filling it's up, going to be filling up old-fashioned lecture rooms about 200, 300 people all talking about the same stuff, books, films. Right. And there's so many of that, like I said, they're advanced for where we're at right now. You go with your AI, the people that are portraying AI, we're just starting to develop AI in the real world. They've developed it to the point where it's taken over the world. Yeah, so, I've seen YouTube and, videos about that. It's going to be like iRobot and Terminator gone real life. Yeah, so you take that 50 years from now, is it really portraying, is it life portraying art or is it art that was so far advanced it's predicted what life is going to be? I get that. You know what's funny is there's a comedian who, who uh, sometimes is derogatory. His name is Bill Burr. He's even done a, a TV series about ethics for family. He's, his, he's been a comedian for many years, and he made uh, a segment about that, about what's going to happen when robots take over the world. The funniest part that he mentioned was he said that there are many human beings that won't end up, end up uh, deceased. They're going to be put in a zoo for, for people to look at. Yeah. It's, I thought that was so funny. Because you never know what could happen. It's kind of true in a way. Yeah, it, it, it's not being morbid. It's not being anything. It's just it makes you think. And that's what art is about to begin with. It's making you think. Sometimes we don't want to think. We just have want to see something or read something and be taken 
way to another place. Where true art, regardless of what medium it is, it makes you think, even subconsciously, what if. Yeah, that's when people get inspired. That's the big moment when it hits. Yes. And when you get that what if moment, then it changes your entire outlook on everything. Though I believe that the biggest conflict with with art is that there's something that people try to role model from art that not every person is going to agree with, with one person in particular. It takes a certain moral or value from from books and movies, etc. Because if there's one thing I've noticed that so many people tend to enjoy, and more so children are this way, compared to adults, is that when somebody reads a certain book or watches a, watches a certain show and they see a character grow from an important lesson that can relate to, to real life, there are so many people who take a certain reference from their, from their timeless books and timeless movies, etc., and when they take it to heart, it becomes a part of their growth. But that growth right. gets damaged by by people who just don't really care so much about what's important. Very true. And a lot of times we let the naysayers determine what's important instead of letting ourselves decide what's important for ourselves. We let people around us tell us what is important. Oh, that part I really know very well. When I was a child, people convinced me that I was worthless, and I used to believe in myself when I was really young. I never believed I was anything worth anything at oh, all yeah. in my life. I was very convinced of that. See, I was the same way. I was bullying in school, and it really took me moving away from that city to say, you know what, why am I letting people tell me what my worth is? They don't know me. And exact same I, way I thought, too. Mm-hmm. I found, it, it took me finding a mentor, and I talk about him a lot in my radio shows because he's a motivational speaker, entrepreneur, author. He, he, I love him as a person. But it took me having him on one of my radio shows to go, you know what, he's absolutely right. No one can tell me my self-worth other than myself. My family can't, my children can't, people that know me can't, and people that don't know me certainly cannot. There is one thing I will at least admit to that, that when it comes to being an artist, there is, yes, a conflict when it comes to relatives, and that conflict is that having a certain side of yourself to being an artist or to being the person you are uniquely will also not be very well understood by family, which is confusing because mm-hmm. if you get a certain talent from a family, family, you would think that all the same people would understand it if they've experienced it themselves, but it's not always treated the same way. It's a very mysterious phenomenon. Right. Even within families, there's conflict because you have people, they think they know the self-worth of a family member. So therefore, they put a label on the talent, on the person, on whatever they're doing, instead of going, you know what? They're doing what makes them happy, or they're looking for feedback to improve their craft. It's more so about sharing the same vision that I do see as the biggest conflict. Because the same vision is not seen or shared, it's why... 
there are other people who think they have to critique the person who has the talent, well, individually speaking, more so as if they understand it. And coming from someone who has experience being an artist in a family, that's one thing to, to give constructive criticism. Even if, a person, even if a person early on is trying to be an artist as a relative, doesn't exactly have all the answers to what they're looking to do and might, may be on the fence at first, that's kind of okay. But to have to really criticize whether or not if they'll make it especially or if, if rather they're constructing it based off a way that makes sense, not right. any particular family member should ever do that in that manner. And I do agree with you on that. It, it's very important for when a, when a person is trying to grow as an artist that they have to let them do what they know is best because in some ways subconsciously they already know that. As a matter of fact, I watched this documentary that was uh, about Bruce Lee, the greatest fighter of all time. Originally, before he was a martial artist starting his own dojo and making his martial art known as Jeet Kune Do, he used to be a philosophy student at a certain college in San Francisco. And he had a professor who encouraged him to be a part of philosophy because he knew a lot about Chinese culture, obviously being of Chinese ethnicity, and the professor himself said that he wanted even Bruce at times to teach more about Chinese philosophy because during the 1960s and 1970s, Chinese philosophy was not as well known back during those decades. Even Kung Fu was new back in those decades. Nobody really knew much about it. And this professor had explained to Bruce that when they first met, according to the documentary I watched, that talent itself has been scientifically proven to come from the subconscious, but a person can bring it, bring it out from their conscious part of their mind while they're awake. And that is the biggest marvel about talent. Very true. But we're almost out of time, and I, I really love this chat we have going on. So before we leave, where can my listeners find you? Well, I have a, uh, I have a Facebook author page. It's facebook.com, lowercase letters, dark author, 2-1. I also have a, uh, a YouTube link. But that link can be found on my Facebook page. And I do have a blog. I, I, I might change my blog to a different website. I'm not sure. But for right now, it's uh, lowercase letters, mm-hmm. kojak, K-O-J-A-K, dot wix.com slash my site. Oh, I forgot. There's a 220 after the kojak and then before the, the dot to wix.com. It's a complicated thing to remember. Oh, I understand perfectly. I mean, we have... But even then, I mean, my blog URL is on my Facebook, so anyone can find that. Well, as long as we can find you on Facebook, I'm sure we'll be able to find you anywhere. So again, (laughs) Jay, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Also, my work, my book, Haunting from Beyond the Unknown, 999. Amazon Kindle, you can go to the purchase site, type in the title of my book, you'll find it there, and you'll see the cover for it, the background, dark blue, and there's a a black helmet in the middle of the the picture. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and you have a great time. You as well. Bye, and happy reading, everyone. Goodbye. Have a nice day, Jace. 